When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Norm and Carson Cohen, two of the editors of An American Singing Heritage, Songs from the British-Irish-American Oral Tradition as Recorded in the Early 20th Century, published by AR Editions in 2021. It's the 32nd volume of the Music of the United States of America series. These are scholarly editions designed to provide performers and researchers with definitive editions of music from a wide variety of traditions, from symphonies by George Bristow to jazz compositions by Mary Lou Williams. Norman Carson worked on the massive project with the late Anne Du McLucas. This collection of 100 songs is a record of a fundamental repertoire in American music. Brought to this country by colonists, the folk songs became one of the foundations of the genre that early record executives called hillbilly music, which was eventually rebranded as country music. Each song has extensive notes explaining the piece's background and text, information about the recording used for the musical transcription, and a list of secondary sources that discuss it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Norm and and Carson. Pleasure to be here. So, um, unfortunately, your third collaborator, Andrew McLucas, um, passed away fairly early on in this project. Um, and before we start talking about the project itself, could you tell us a little bit about Dr. McLucas? Sure. Uh, Anne McLucas was a, a folk musicologist at the University of Oregon for many years. She was chairman of the department at the time that she passed away. Uh, her interests included not only folk music, but also classical music and jazz and, and other varieties. And she was an accomplished keyboard player as well. And did she, um, my understanding is that she recruited you, Norm, for the project. Is that correct? Was she sort of the lead in um, the initial, I don't yeah, know, yes. uh, coming this up with all, the idea? Yeah, this was all her idea to begin with. And we had met just... Oh, a few times before that uh, at, at meetings, and uh, I had visited her at her home and so on. And uh, the, the whole project was her conception, and she wanted somebody to help her with it. And then um, my understanding is that after she passed away, Carson, that's when you became involved? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I never met Anne. Um, I just in passing asked my dad once what you know, what's his latest project that he's working on? And he told me about um, this book and, and about what happened to Anne and that she was doing the transcriptions. And I asked, well, what, so is the project on hold? And he said, for the time being. So I said, well, if you just need transcriptions, maybe I can help. Um, and that's how that happened. Well, I, it's certainly an amazing project. Um, and let's let's start by just sort of um, explaining the repertoire and, and sort of how the project uh, works, I guess. And so the first thing is that um, this is a massive repertoire of folk songs, but you only chose a hundred pieces. So um, maybe we could start with how, how were those hundred songs chosen? Maybe Norm, you could start with that. 
answer sure. that? Well, you know, we had uh, lurking in the back of our minds is the notion of most popular folk songs, but that's kind of an oxymoron in a sense. Uh, first of all, there's no quantitative way to measure popularity when you're dealing with an oral tradition. Um, you know, with with pop music or other forms of music, there's there are some tangibles that you can go by. You know, sheet music sales or recording sales or, or um, number of times listened to or played on radio programs and so on. But with an oral tradition like folk music, you just have none of those possibilities. So what we had to do was conceive, was try to imagine that we want to get the selection, the hundred songs that one would be most likely to hear if one were in these folk communities where the music thrives and is still current. And how to do that, how to obtain a proxy for that uh, was the, was our first challenge. So how did you do that? <laughs> how did you figure that so, out? Okay, so I said, uh, let's look at the various places in which the folk music has been captured. Uh, that is to say, field recordings by professional folklorists, uh, recordings of traditional music in other venues, publications in folk song collections. Uh, so basically, we took all of those uh, and started looking, tallying up the songs that were most often collected uh, either orally and then uh, and recorded or published. So the combination of the two, publications and recordings. Well, the other thing that occurs to me is so there's, you know, figuring out what's popular, but then also how did you work out what the limits to this repertoire was? I mean, you've called it British Irish American. What what exactly does that mean? Why use those three country designations right. and all well, of that? In other words, we wanted to separate out African American music and other ethnic American musics, uh, such as Polish American, Yiddish American. Uh, uh, and German-American and so on, simply because that just casts such a wide net that we would never get done. So we limit, limited it to English language music in the Anglo-American uh, Irish tradition, with the exception of, of one recording that we used by an African-American performer. And um, you said that you were looking at recordings, both commercial and recordings that were um uh recorded for commercial uh, for by folklorists yes. and maybe i'll ask carson this question I, I and of course norm you should should chime in but it occurred to me that a folklorist like john or alan lomax who i know collected many of these and a commercial recording by decca or something the people that were recording them and the ways that they recorded that are very different you know they those commercial recordings they would herd people into to a, a room and start recording them in a hotel someplace and and the lomaxes were much more likely to to be sort of in somebody's home or or something like that so do you think that the where it was recorded and the reasons for which it was recorded made a big difference. Did you see that as changing the recording or changing the purpose of the recording made made things something more or less suitable for this collection? Well, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that it wouldn't make a difference. Um, but really, that's more my dad's sort of area of expertise. Uh, so I'll defer to his his answer. 
yes, it, it does make a difference. Uh, the, it, it's more straightforward with the folklorists like the, the Lomaxes, such as you mentioned. I mean, they did uh, tour around. They would visit a community. Um, they would generally have prearranged uh, they would have set up sessions by talking to the local folklorists or the local people who knew who was a good singer or performer in that in that community, and then they would go visit them. Uh, the commercial recordings, uh, and we're talking about commercial recordings from the mid-20s to the mid-1940s, started out, uh, this was a new musical genre, recording traditional performers in Appalachia and the Ozarks and so on. And that whole genre started out because the recording industry was looking for new types of music. They, see, they saw that they were being threatened by radio, by movies, by other forms of entertainment, and they wanted to broaden their, their audience. And they, and they de determined to broaden their audience by broadening their performers. So they would initially, they would advertise in local newspapers, you know, we are sending, uh, Victor Talking Machine Company is going to have some field recording uh, uh, engineers and so on set up in such and such a hotel or such and such a location. Anybody who is interested in making a recording, uh, please come at such and such a time. And so you got traditional performers who were really peaked, who were really curious about the notion of going and making a recording. So initially they were recording performers who had very little uh, commercial experience. And these folks would come in, record their handful of tunes. Uh, they'd be sent off. And if the recordings were really interesting or good, then the, then the, uh, uh, the company might contact them and ask them if they cared to come back. So over the period of a decade or so, they started out with completely non-professional and it gradually weeded itself down to those who were interested in continuing a, a sort of a semi-commercial career. So by the end, uh, there wasn't that much difference. It was more similar to what, uh, you know, the difference between the commercial and the non-commercial became less clear-cut. So as these as these singers were sort of as you said were weeded out to the ones that were more interested in having a commercial career did you see them changing the music to conform to what they assumed a commercial audience wanted or do you or do you think that they were really just singing the music that they knew from home and they weren't making any change, particular changes to it to well, it well you know the ones who continued to perform um, are, were, were very significantly affected by the recording process because, you know, if you're just singing for your uh, home community somewhere in, the, uh, in some rural Tennessee or somewhere, uh, your neighbors are going to want to hear you sing your favorite songs over and over, and you will become known for those songs, and they'll become associated with you. Once you step into a commercial studio and record that same song or those same songs, you don't need to record it again for them. So if you want to continue this, this relationship with the commercial company, you're going to have to find other songs. And so you'll exhaust your own repertoire, perhaps, and then maybe you'll start writing some songs or finding newer songs. 
So gradually, you know, that it, it, the, there, is a, there is a change. The commercial recording artists uh, who made that transition most uh, uh, blatantly were people like Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. I mean, they started out uh, like all the other non-commercial musicians, uh, performers. They had a, a very local career. But then with the recordings, uh, they became very, very popular and there was a demand for more and more material. So what they didn't already know, uh, they would start writing songs or turning to other people to write songs. So how did you tell the difference between, you know, sort of what they wrote, new songs they wrote and these older traditional songs? Well, you know well, what I'm saying? Like, if yeah. it's all in the same style, how did you get to the point where, well, this this is clearly newly composed by Jimmy Rogers? Well, what we were interested in was the, was the oral tradition. So after a point, and that happens around 1940, 41, 42, they're not recording traditional songs anymore. All, this, all the material, it's moved from hillbilly music, which is still a fairly traditional genre, to country western or country music. And it's mostly a freshly composed genre. And so, at that, sorry, go ahead. Well, at that point then, so so uh, to go back to a previous question, we we labeled we we focused on the traditional music of the first half of the twentieth century because you can't take an open ended time period because the music is going to be changing constantly. So we said let's focus on the first half of the twentieth century and we'll take recordings and material that's been collected say from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century also. So um, you mentioned that when, uh, before it was recorded, these um, uh, singers would have been singing them for their home communities. Where were these home communities? Did you have a specific geographic area that you were looking at? Um, we, we tried very hard to get material that re represented as much of the United States as possible. And the challenge there is that, for example, with the recordings, the hillbilly recordings, that's almost exclusively Southeastern United States. Uh, and we didn't want to limit ourselves to that. So you turn to published collections and, and there is a substantial body of material collected um, in New England, in the Southeast, uh, somewhat less in the Southwest and Midwest, and even less in the Far West. Uh, but we did the best we could to try to represent all regions of the country. Carson, I'd love to pull you into this conversation for a moment. I know you did the majority of the musical um, transcriptions. Can you talk a little bit about, um, so it sounds like you didn't choose the recordings yourself. Did did your right. father tell you which ones? So right. what were some of the challenges of actually uh, transcribing uh, these pieces? Um, well, I would imagine they're the same challenges that most people encounter when they try to trans transcribe these types of recordings, for one thing, just the recording quality, um, you know, often makes it hard to pick out, say, is that a, is that a guitar or is that a banjo? Um, you know, especially if there's, you know, in some cases there's uh, a number of players um, playing and they're all kind of playing the same thing. Um, so, so there's that, there's also things like, um, you know, say a, a song sounds like it's in A, 
the key of A, but anyone who, you know, plays guitar can tell that the guitarist is actually playing a G. So, um, you know, is his guitar just tuned up? Is, is Was the recording equipment not calibrated right? Uh, was, the, was the digitization wrong? For whatever reason. Um, so for, so in, in, in a case like that, we would, uh, I chose to transcribe it the way the guitarist played it in, in G in that example. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, being that these players and singers are not trained at all, often their, their rhythms and the pitches are pretty indistinct um, or, you know, they're, they're sort of in between the spaces, in between the notes, in between the, the beats. And, and I definitely struggled a lot with how, how precise to be. I mean, I wasn't, you know, when I started, I was just, I didn't have any really background in, in folk music. Um, so I was just jumping in and transcribing it, sort of trying to do it as literally as possible. And then more and more, I, I started to wonder what the value was of, of being so exact and so precise um, when you're dealing with music that isn't precise i mean that the, the performers weren't thinking of it that way you know if you if they had one bar of seven eight in there and a whole song they weren't that wasn't an intentional necessarily decision on their part that's just sort of you know the way they felt it so so and there, there were times when it made sense made sense to, to do it very precisely like that and there were times when it didn't seem to make sense and uh so yes, that was that was sort of my main struggle was just walking that line between extreme accuracy and you know imagining that I understand their intention and and um, you know and transcribing what I thought that might be instead. This, so, this is a this is a problem that other uh, musicologists dealing with folk music have 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 you know torn their hair out about. Uh, people like Percy Granger and uh, Cecil Sharp, um, uh, uh, Charles Seeger, uh, men who are trained in, in um, uh, classical music and now are trying to transcribe recordings of traditional singers, uh, realized, and some of them said specifically, that the, the more accurate you make the transcription, the more difficult it's going to be for anyone to read or to try to duplicate. So, you know, they faced the problem that Carson ran into. You have to compromise between accuracy and uh, uh, performability or, or uh, you know, the equivalent. Okay, we're going to have to stop because now Carson can't hear anything. Carson, you still can't hear us? <sighs> what the? <laughs> <laughs> this is new for me. I've never no. had this kind of problems before. Wow. Can I can hear you. Okay. okay, I can hear you now. Okay, right. now I can hear you. Okay. That was very weird. My external <laughs> speaker switched on its own to a different output. Okay. That's very bizarre. Sorry. Okay, no, no, it's fine. So I just let your dad finish the, his his question so that we could cut the recording okay. more easily. Sure. So, all right, so that's done. So, um, so uh, let me pick up. Um, I was wondering, you know, so Norm, you were talking about how um, many people who've transcribed this repertoire have dealt with similar problems that Carson was talking about. Like, how exact are you? This is music that's not really designed for Western notation, and you're trying to stuff it into Western notation. Um, 
because we have access to these recordings, why were why did you feel that it was important to um, to create a scholarly edition of this music that includes a musical transcription? Since so, since in large numbers you can um, find these recordings um, in various archives as well as um, you know out on the internet uh, in the wild. Um, so what's what's the value of having um, a scholarly edition of this repertoire? I think that was really Anne should be here to answer that question because. Uh, th this was her conception, but and and she did things. She, for example, she um, her, her plan, which we carried out, was to transcribe not only one stanza or one uh, of a song, but to transcribe an entire song, because she felt there would be nuances and and variation that would be lost if you if you just recorded one stanza, which has always been the, the common procedure with uh, transcribing folk music. She felt that there would be a great deal more revealed by transcribing every stanza. I, I think in retrospect, and Carson can comment on this, I think there turned out to be less variation than I, than I would have expected. Uh, was that your feeling also, Carson? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so some of the songs were almost identical from, from stanza to stanza. Um, in fact, I, I was only just recently thinking that that possibly um, comparing a single stanza from different recordings might have been interesting, an interesting way to go to see different, you know, the interpretations by different people rather than just one person's how one person's interpretation changed during the course of a, a single performance, you know, especially given that that performance was probably never formed that same way again. Yes. Yes. Uh, that also, I'm sorry, Norm. Let me just ask that also brings up the issue of like, how did you choose which recording? <laughs> okay. We, um, we, we, we wanted to do several things. First of all, we wanted to have uh, to include a number of recordings that had, were not commonly available. Uh, when we started out the project, I would say half or two thirds of the material was not uh, would not have been accessible to most people. Um, secondly, we wanted, as I mentioned before, we wanted to represent the entire country. In other words, not just the southeast, where most folk music recording has been carried out. We wanted to get examples from all over the country if we could. Secondly, we wanted a balance between male and female performers. And we talked to a little bit about that in the introduction, about how there's a there's somewhat of a difference in, in the gender balance between the commercial recordings and the and the field recordings. Field recordings tended to find more women, commercial recordings tended to uh, find more men. Um, th those were some of the factors that we wanted. And we wanted just to represent a variety of styles. So smooth singing, uh, very rough singing, uh, singers that we thought uh, represented the best of a tradition and sometimes singers that were just very idiosyncratic and would show the, you know, push the boundaries a little bit. Uh, so, so we tried to, you know, to, to make a very broad covering of, of traditional music. So before we turn to some um, examples of particular songs, 
Um, I wonder if you could, um, Norm, you can talk about text maybe, and then Carson about the music. Did you find, uh, first of all, in the text, are there, I don't know, trends that you saw in the music? Did, did they tend to talk about sort of the same topics? Like, can you give us just sort of an overview of the textual uh, elements of this tradition? There was a, the most popular songs, that is the ones that turned up most often and therefore are at the top of our collection, tended to be, first of all, ballads. In other words, story songs. Uh, I think it's, it was a common uh, uh, finding of, of people who did collected songs that in American folk tradition, stories are important. And uh, those were the songs that were most, that were most often encountered, recorded, uh, transcribed and so on. So all the top uh, 20 or 25 or so are ballads, uh, songs that tell a story. As you get down toward the not quite so popular, there are more songs that are that were uh, dance songs, songs that accompanied uh, banjo and fiddle tunes, uh, uh, and, and and more sentimental type pieces. So there there was that trend. Um, I, I guess I would. Uh, ask Carson then to comment on, on any musical trance. Well, when I was doing the transcriptions, I didn't really have in, in my head a, a good, and I still don't, a good idea of, of you know, which uh, songs came from which region or were from what era. So I didn't really make any associations that, oh, all the ones from the from Texas ha have this, you know, and all the ones from the South have, have that. Um, so, um, I, I guess I can't really say that, that I did. Um, there was, in, in terms of the, the lyrics, I mean, I always knew that there was a lot of borrowing of, of phrases and, and, and uh, verses from one song to another, but I guess I, it was a lot more than I was aware of. Um, also, just how often, um, you know, they're sort of singing about the same thing, the same story, you know, the, 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 you know the the man who kills his girl, for example. You know, there's there's probably at least ten of those in this book. Um, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. The, there were quite a few, and yes, you're right. Uh, songs about the murdered sweetheart uh, yeah. was a very common theme in American traditional balladry. You know, all through the 20th century. Uh, so yeah, we had we had several. Some that some of them were uh, came from England, and some of them were. Uh, songs that originated on the continent, but that was definitely the most popular uh, narrative theme uh, in, in our song collection. I think actually the thing that was most interesting to me uh, from reading your text about it was how, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, the, the, the lyrics were sort of censored when they got to the United States because of the, the puritanical sort of attitude we had here. And whereas if you find, if you go back and look at the way they were uh, in Europe, they were they were more explicit uh, and would, would you know, and so sometimes there, there's sort of a mystery uh, in the United States version as to why something happened. And, and once you realize that they, they would cut out uh, certain elements of the story, um, you know, that then, then the, that that makes it makes it much more uh, confusing when you when you try to understand what happened and why. That was yeah, that's a good point. Um, ele 
uh, all the songs about the the murdered sweetheart. Uh, any details of the sex or or the violence or the the fact that that she became pregnant. Um, American singers tended towards squeamishness on all of those counts, and so uh, if they were explicit in the British ballad to begin with, they got lost in the versions that 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 ended up being recorded in the United States. So as you say, there was sometimes you'd get a a, a story of a murder. And there's no and and the uh, uninitiated listener has no idea why the murder took place. He doesn't he or she doesn't know that there was a uh, in uh, um, a, a pregnancy involved, uh, and that the the male decided to murder her rather than to marry her. Uh, and so sometimes you'll get an added uh, uh, word or two suggesting that she wasn't faithful to him or he was jealous of something else. So, so, so uh, motives changed in these ballads. Do you have um, any idea of when they were actually performed sort of, you know, in a community setting in somebody's home or, or, you know, at a party or whatever, would they have told the story so that the audience understood the murder ballad in a different way than we might hear the murder ballad coming just as a recording by itself or just in this um in this edition by itself, you know, like, I guess I'm asking sort of what, what did people know about these ballads? Well, they undoubtedly had a more complete sense of the story than was explicit in the song. So they wouldn't have needed to be told the motives. These were ballads and songs that they grew up with, heard in their community over and over again. Uh, and, and elements that, um, you know, that were not explicit, they would have understood. And so when that song then becomes recorded as a commercial hillbilly recording distributed nationally, other audiences are available. The song, the, the meaning of the song is not as explicit to them. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's a change that happens you know, over time. And also, I guess the difference between consuming this as hillbilly music on the radio that you enjoy and have it be the music of the tradition that you're actually growing up with. Yeah, and there's another kind of related point here, and that is that those performers who went, who started out being traditional, non-commercial, and then started to enjoy a, 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 you know, a, a thriving career making recordings like a Jimmy Rogers, like a Carter family um, and others, you know, in our own time, people like Doc Watson, they will start to modify their repertoire because they begin to sense that their audience has a different, uh, you know, comes from a different place and responds to different types of things. And so they will, um, the material will change as a result. That's the respect in which the recordings have not only documented the tradition, but they bring about a change in it. Are you talking about changing, uh, you know, a few words here and there? Because I, I, I know I read something that you wrote about how people would change, you know, like from, you know, this, you know, say if they mention a river, they change it to a, a local river. Uh, or are you talking about, um, you know, dropping a song completely and, and, and doing a repertoire that, uh, that's exclusively appreciated by the region? Well, I think both. Uh, mm -hmm. I think they learned... You know, all good performers, regardless how commercial they are, 
will will respond to their audiences. Um, you know, they'll get some feedback from the audience, mm-hmm. and uh, and if they're really trying to make create a professional career for themselves, they will be very motivated, I should think, to adapt their repertoire to what goes over best. Mm-hmm. You know, so little changes as well as big changes. Can I can I tell a little anecdote in here? Absolutely. Um, at, at back in around 1963, at an early uh, book festival at, at uh, University of California in Berkeley, uh, one of the performers or one of the acts was the Blue Sky Boys, a traditional pair of uh, brother act from uh, who grew up in North Carolina, very popular in the 1930s. And then they were sort of quote unquote rediscovered in the 60s. You know, they they were not lost, but as far as commercially. Uh, they enjoyed a second career. And so they appeared at a number of folk festivals. So at this particular one in Berkeley, they sang a song um, uh, down in the Willow Garden, which is one of these murdered girl ballads. And in this ballad, the murder takes place, but not only do they, uh, do they, no, I'm sorry, it was Knoxville girls, sorry. But not only do they, does the, um, uh, the the villain or the uh, the the protagonist uh, try to drown his sweetheart. He also uh, beats her with a uh, 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 a, brand, a a stick from a fence, and he does other things to him. So there's a series of violent acts that are performed there, and it's all sung in a very straightforward, undramatic fashion. And as he started to, the singer started to go through this litany of, of abusive treatment, the audience starts to titter and, and laugh, and they don't know quite how to respond to it. And this is a, a, a college audience now. And so by the end of the song, uh, Bill Bollock, the, one of the singers, you know, pauses for a moment and he speaks back to the audience. And he says, I know that, that to you, you know, some of these songs may sound a little funny or a little weird, but we took them very seriously where I grew up and we had a very different attitude toward them. So it was an example of, of, a, of a very perceptive traditional performer seeing how different his, uh, his urban audience responded from his rural audience that he grew up with. You said that um, you tried to um, have, you know, men and women singers that you were pulling recordings from. Did women sing these, you know, very violent murder ballads as well? Or was that something more likely to be sung by a man? No, they would sing them, but they they might not sing any songs uh, that had, where, where the sex was too obvious or body songs or they might sing it for women in their community, but would not sing it for a male uh, folklorist who was making the recording. Right. So these murder ballads, do do you interpret them as being sort of cautionary tales to keep everybody in line, essentially? I mean, why why do you think they were so popular? Uh, I guess there were different reasons in different communities, Um, but, but, I guess that could have been a reason, uh, could have been reason. But uh, I think that there was also just the element of, uh, see, if they really wanted to dwell on, to make them cautionary, I think they would have not wanted to eliminate some of the violent, explicit violence. It would have been more effective that way. So, you know, I, I don't think that was the only reason. I'm sure it was a contributing reason. You know, it is easy when you see hear something over and over, you sort of become desensitized to what the words really 
are, mm -hmm. you know, they, you, they're just, you know, it's like ring around the rosy or something. You don't really think about, well, this is actually right. super violent. <laughs> like, you know? right. Right. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we do have a few before we started this interview, we we talked about maybe um, listening to a few of these ballads or excerpts from them and talking about them specifically just to give our listeners a sense of this repertoire and the kinds of issues that you were thinking about. And um, I, I think we'll start, you have two different versions, I guess. Um, it's all one number. If, if you, if someone is listening to this that actually has the book, it's number 11. Um, and it's called Tom, Shar Tom Sherman's Barroom and St. James Hospital. So I'm wondering why did you pair those two together in the first place? Well, it, even though this is a um, nominally Anglo-American Irish tradition, it's it's very hard to just turn your back on the influence of the African-American tradition as well. And some of these songs turned up in African-American tradition. And one of the things that we thought was interesting was to look at one song that had a um, made that transition to African-American and to look what happens to the ballad when that transition takes place. So this was our one example of a song with two different uh, versions of it. Carson pointed out that in retrospect, it might've been more interesting if the whole collection uh, had done more of that, you know, and, and we certainly thought about that at one point, but uh, that was just a decision that we made very early on. And once we made that decision, it was hard to go back on it. But this was an example that was just, we felt uh, too good an example to to not uh, make use of. So maybe Carmen, Carson can talk about uh, some of the musical differences in the two. As I rode down the Tom Sherman's barroom, Tom Sherman's barroom one morning in May, was there a spot gear handsome cowboy all dressed in white linen as cool as Not the clay i knew by your outfit that you were a cowboy that's what they all say as i go riding along come gather around me you said a jolly cowboy and listen to me, comrade, said he. It's each and all, mail and take warning. And quit your wild roving before it's too late. It is once in the saddle I used to go dashing. It's once in the saddle I used to be gay. First taking to drinking and then the card playing. Got shot through the breast, and now I must die. Go bury the news gently to my gray-headed mother, and whisper them lowly to my sister so dear. And don't forget the word that I've told you, for I'm a gay cowboy, and I know I've done wrong. Go beat your drum loudly and play or five slowly and play dead marches as a cat. All right. So that gives us a sense of what that song is about. Um, can you talk a little bit about the text there, Norm? 
Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, some singers may recognize, or some listeners may recognize in that uh, the Streets of Laredo, a cowboy song that was quite widely known. And you, some may also recognize in the, after, especially after we play the next one, uh, the St. James Infirmary. These are both very widely different versions of the same, uh, basically the same story and the same ballad. And these two recordings that we've chosen also are two very different versions of the same story. So Dick, Dick Duvall, the singer of that recording um, from Oklahoma, was a traditional singer. He happened to have recorded both for the Lomaxes and also for RCA Victor when they uh, were doing some of their hillbilly recordings. This particular recording was actually a commercial hillbilly recording, one of the very few that was ever made a cappella. Um, so it's interesting to compare that particular version with the African-American one, which is also uh, sung without accompaniment. Can you um, just tell us what that story is? Since we didn't listen to the whole song, we can't really get a sense of that. The original story is uh, going back to uh, the British Isles, is the story of a, of a young soldier who contracts a venereal disease and dies, but in the course as he's dying, gives instructions for his funeral. Uh, he, he wants soldiers to accompany his coffin. He wants pretty maids to be singing, uh, to follow along. Uh, bunches of roses strewn over the coffin so they won't smell the corpse as it goes by and so on. Um, so that ballad came to the United States and became a cowboy song. Uh, and we talked before about how certain elements get lost in the, cross, uh, the crossing of, of the Atlantic. The fact that it was a venereal disease is not, does not appear in this ballad anymore. In fact, uh, it turns out that he's dying because he was shot in the breast by another cowboy. So uh, that's one good example of how these songs have changed when they come to the new world. Um, so Carson, listening to the music, mm -hmm. um, does there, is there anything in particular that jumps out at you as being notable or unusual or very similar to other songs that, that you worked on? Um, well, the, the couple of things that stood out to me are, are you know, this, um, one thing, it's transcribed in E minor, like E Dorian, <clears throat> with two sharps, um, but it could have just as easily been E mixolydian, because there are a number of G sharps in there, where it does the major third, it, almost as many as the minor third, so that kind of could have gone either way, um, and it doesn't seem to be consistent in terms of you know, where that happens. You know, it isn't always the major third and the third stanza and always the minor third and the fourth stanza or anything like that. And in the first uh, line of each stanza, there's no third at all. It skips the third, um, which I, which is a sound that I always like. Um, in fact, it reminds me of a, the, the sawmill banjo tuning where they tune the third up to the fourth. Um, so yeah, it goes from the, <clears throat> The, the root to the second to the fourth to the fifth da, 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 uh, with no third at all so it, it, it it's ambiguous in that regard from the beginning um, 
and and it has it also has a thing that that I have heard in a lot of um, these tunes where it it has this sort of m suggestion of of being kind of modal rather than diatonic, um, and that's the way that in the third line of each stanza, it it almost almost modulates to the to the four. Um, um, see, it's um, let me see. I can't. Um, gosh, sorry, I I can't. Take me to the graveyard. That part, um, where it it kind of it it ends the phrase on the on the four chord, which which stands out to me. Um, and and again, it's something that I've heard in a number of these songs. Um, none of this is something that I could say relates specifically to the text or or. Uh, or other versions or other tunes. It's just the things that stand out to me listening to it right now. Well, let's listen to the other version. This is by James Ironhead ba uh, Baker. Um, and uh, it does sound quite different. So let's uh, give that a listen. Good uh, morning. Morning, month of May. We're on the clearing a window, and I spy a dear cowboy wrapped up in white linen. He was cold as a clay. Says, "Come, dear mother, mother, see yourself now, me." I'm the father to him sing me a song for my newborn aching and my poor heart and breaking. Well, I know I, oh, poor cowboy, father, and I know I've done wrong. Six young gamblers, Papa to balance my coffin. Sixteen young hogas, while they sing me a song. Tell them to bring along a bunch of them sweet smelling roses. So they smell me. Where they drive me low. Well, in my saddle, Father, I use a good dashing. Father, in my young days. When I so, um, can you quantify perhaps some of those differences that we're hearing? Um, maybe we'll start with Norm so Carson can think some mm -hmm. more. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Baker's version is is very is more um, in the spirit of African American folk song in the degree of freedom in his you know rhythm and and so on. Uh, typically, Anglo American singers were much more metrically oriented, although the Tom Sherman's Barroom is, is an example where there is more variation in rhythm than you typically hear. Uh, I was. It was really surprising that that recording was issued by RCA uh, commercially because it's not at 
it's very different from what typical uh, hillbilly song recordings were like in the 19, late 1920s. So um, uh, that's that always struck me. But we, we liked it because, it, partly because it is an unusual performance and it is, I think, a very dramatic and effective way of telling that story. Carson, what, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, uh, hearing them back to back like that, I, I actually am seeing much more of a similarity than I, than I saw before, just in terms of the, the general shape of the melody. Although the St. James Hospital is, is, is very clearly in a minor key. Uh, there's nothing ambiguous about it like there was in Tom Sherman's ballroom. Um, but the, the contours of the melody are actually are similar. And, and this also does have that same thing where the, the penultimate um, phrase of each stanza uh, emphasizes, I think for the only time in the stanza, the, the natural sixth of, of degree of the scale, which gives the impression of the four chord, the, the subdominant. Um, so that, that's in both of them. Um, so yeah, like I said, they're, they're, they're sort of more similar than I had previously realized. So do you think um, that this is a great, a good example of the ways that um, uh, the effects of segregation on the thinking of, of recording executives who would say, well, this is a white singer, here's a hillbilly song, here's a black singer, this is a blues song. We see that, you know, in real life, they were talking to each other and playing for each other and knew all the same repertoire, but, but that's not how it gets disseminated in a commercial aspect. Would you say this is a good example of how, the, sort of musically, how that works? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> um, the uh, there is no. It is certainly true that the recording industry um, segregated performers and they 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 marketed them differently. Recordings by white artists were sold to in white communities. Recordings by black artists were sold in in, in black communities, and and it was a distinction a distinction that was pretty rigid commercially, but not at all among the performers themselves. Um, there were a few examples of a, a commercial recording of a of a black artist who sounded so white. That the company released it, you know, in the uh, along with the hillbilly music, and and vice versa. A few white singers who uh, had a very effective uh, African American style, um, as perceived at the time. Now, our our notions today are very different from what they were, you know, eighty, a hundred years ago. Uh, I mean, I I know that there were African Americans who thought Jimmy Rogers was black, based on his recordings. Uh, and there are other, you know, other examples of that too. So yeah, the, the race issue is very complicated. Uh, there were a couple of string bands that had both black and white performers, but when they took studio photos of them, for example, they'd leave the black ones out. So to the to the unknowing audience, these were white hillbillies. Uh, there was no notion that this was an integrated, you know, string band. Yes, we certainly can't get away from the effects of segregation on music, even um, even in a collected edition that that is trying to really focus in on on notes and texts. That's always going to hang over our music industry and and the way that music 
develops, I guess, in, in the US as well. Um, so very interesting example there. Um, for one last one, let's move to the two sisters, which is number 28 in the um, uh, in this collection. Um, this is, um, I guess it's a one of the child ballads. Can you explain what a child ballad, a ballad is, Norm? So Francis James Child <clears throat> was a uh, ballad scholar in, in uh, Boston uh, at Harvard University in the late 1900s. And he became the, the preeminent uh, scholar in terms of the collect collecting and analyzing of these, of a collection of Anglo-American ballads that some of them date back to the 15th, 16th centuries and some of them uh, from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So he made this collection of what he thought were all the traditional ballads in the Anglo-American oral tradition. Turns out there were many others. But anyway, his analysis of these ballads uh, and discussion of them uh, played such a large role in the scholarship of, of folk music that, that uh, his the way he categorized them and numbered them became sort of a standard for uh, collectors uh, in the century afterwards. So, so you would identify a song as being child ballad number 20, regardless of the fact that it had uh, 20 different um, titles and different performances, but the ballad number would make everybody aware of which song you're talking about. So let's listen to that real quick. There was an old woman lived on the seashore, bow down. There was an old woman lived on the seashore, bow and balance to me. There was an old woman lived on the seashore, and she had daughters three or four. I'll be true to my love if my love be true to me. There was a young man keep courting there, bow down. There was a young man keep courting there, bow and balance to me. There was a young man came courting there, and choice he picked the youngest fair. I'll be true to my love if my love be true to me. He bought the youngest a fine fur hat, bow down. He bought the youngest a fine fur hat, bow and balance to me. He bought the youngest a fine fur hat, the oldest sister didn't like that. I'll be true to my love if my love be true to me. Oh, sister, oh, sister, let's go to seashore, bow down. Oh, sister, oh, sister, let's go to seashore, bow and balance to me. Oh, sister, oh, sister, let's go to seashore and see the ships come sailing o'er. I'll be true to my love if my love be true to me. So, um, Norm, maybe we can start with the text again. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, song? So this is a song that goes back to England, um, not sure exactly how far back, probably 17th or 18th century. Uh, and there's a murder takes place, but this is uh, because of the jealousy of two sisters who are both in love with the same man. Uh, he shows his favors to one of them and the uh, one sister drowns the other one because she wants to have the, uh, uh, she, she wants that man. Uh, there are uh, different versions of it uh, way back in when it was first uh, emerged in the folk tradition, uh, some indication that that the man himself may have had something to do with the murder. Uh, there are also complications in the story about how when she is 
fished out of the water, her body is fished out of the water, or her bones are fished out, that somebody makes a musical instrument out of her bones, and then the bones uh, automatically seeing the story of what happened to the woman. Uh, it, when that, in this case, the song is shows that it's really uh, a musical version of a folktale that's even that's still older. A lot of that does not emerge in the American version, of course. So the performer Bradley Kincaid from Kentucky uh, was one of the. Uh, this was a commercial recording. Uh, he had a commercial career, but he was uh, he he started out as a traditional non-commercial performer, who then became commercial. He was very interested in folk songs when he was growing up, and he did a lot of collecting himself. So he kind of straddled the line between the commercial performer and the folklorist who was actually collecting the material. The song that he recorded here, uh, he knew more verses to it, and he, you can tell he's a little rushed um, because of the three uh, or so minute limitation of a 78 RPM record. Uh, singers had to cram long ballads into, you know, they had to truncate them considerably, and he had to do that in this case. And Carson, what, what do you see as being interesting about the music? Well, this one, um, and it's funny because when I listen to it now, it, it seems very obvious. But at first, um, and this may have been because I was somewhat biased by other versions of this song I had heard, but I was originally, without even really thinking about it, I was going to transcribe it in 12-8. It was, there are a lot of rhythms that were sort of in between, like the guitar, for example, is actually a straight eighth accompaniment. So that would have necessitated, um, you know, a, a duple eighth notation. Um, but, but eventually I, I, I decided to, to, to do it in two, four in cut time because it's, it's a little more towards, was an old woman lived on the seashore um, you know, and it's it's sort of between them, and and there there's sometimes when it's very leans much more towards the triplet, and sometimes where it leans much more towards the, you know, the eighth and sixteenth notes, but partly because my conception of the song was very much in a triple meter, uh, I I put this one not in a triple meter because I thought that's what made this one sound a little more distinct from the other ones. Well, what I love about what you said about this one and the previous songs is as you talk through these issues, you see how um, exacting the job of the transcriber is and mm -hmm. how um, how many judgment calls you really have to make when, again, you're dealing with a, a tradition that was never written down and now you're yeah. trying to fix sort of in amber um uh, something that's not fixed in amber to begin with right right now. i i can't tell you how many times i i did a transcription and then went back and looked at it and, and thought wait that that's not right that's completely wrong you know just heard it a different way this time uh and you know just as many times and the next time i listened to it i went back to the first way um and and there are times when i had disagreements with the editor where he where i would say i had written a note uh, you know I, to me it sounded like a flat seventh and he's to him it sounded like the natural sixth um you know and and you sort of have to pick your battles you know what how strongly do you feel about it um how how important is it really um 
yeah, it's that that was the biggest frustration for me is is going back and listening to songs and and thinking that I had gotten it wrong and having to do it again. There were, there was one instance where I, it was one of the Carter family songs. Um, um, I don't remember what it was called. Oh, uh, no, it was it's one of the last ones in the book. I, I remember that. Um, I did a transcription, and then when I listened to the um, recording of it. It Is was single, single girl married. Single girl married girl. That's right. Ninety six. Yeah, um, yeah I, I I listened to it again, and and things were so wrong that I couldn't understand it. And then I, f- I finally realized that they had re-recorded the song um, a couple of times, and it was it was very close, you know, to the to the you know to the casual listener but once you start getting into the weeds you know there are some very specific differences and I thought I had completely lost my mind for having transcribed it so wrong um Norm do you think as a folklorist yourself I'm not a folklorist so I you know I don't exactly know the ways that um uh people who study this music approach it do you think these transcriptions will be more useful to them as scholars than the recordings in some ways because you can you can look at the notes or I mean what do you see as the value to a scholar for for these transcriptions because they're going to be listening to the music as well uh yeah it's hard to say I I think it would depend on whether the the scholar who is interested in it is interested in it from the musical perspective or the textual um Uh, to me personally, not being as as musically literate as uh, as others as other folks are, uh, the two of you, for example, uh, I would I would want the recording because that would be much more meaningful to me. Carson's comments, you know, just about the Brad, the Bradley Kincaid and about the the rhythmic change, uh, it's obvious when he when he uh, pulls that out. But I would never have noticed that if I were just listening to the recording. I would have focused on the lyrics and and how his version of the story is similar to or different from, say, other uh, examples of this particular ballad. Um, so I think you know what what the what the audience will take out of this will depend on what their perspective is, yeah. what their background is. Well, this has really been so interesting, and I'm glad we looked at some specific songs so we could get a sense of the issues that that arise um, as as you got down into the weeds, as you said, in one individual piece. But um, I think that we have been uh, talking about this uh, collection for a long time. It's, it's an excellent connection. I hope that um, people will uh look into this uh, repertoire more as a result of this conversation. And thank you so much for your work on this um, and for joining me today to talk about it. Of course. Thanks for having us. So uh, this is, this has been Kristen Turner of the New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Norm and Carson Cohen today about an American singing heritage, songs from the British Irish American oral traditions as recorded in the early 20th century, published by AR Editions in 2021. Thank you again for talking to me today. Thanks. Our pleasure. Thanks, Kristen.